Well, today we resume our study in the book of Genesis and we come to chapter 15 and we will be looking at verses 1 through 15. These are the words of God. Then the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. No, she's not listening from behind the tent door. (laughs) Let us pray. Lord God, we pray you'd open uh, your word to us by the Holy Spirit. Let us see your glory, Lord, as you dealt with Abraham and Sarah, our forefather and foremother in the faith. And let us learn, Lord, that we might walk with you faithfully in our own day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text opens with God telling us a secret which Abraham and Sarah will only figure out slowly. And that is the fact that this is the Lord, accompanied by two angels, appearing as three men who are coming once again to Abraham, and this time to Sarah as well. And so the the story begins in the heat of the day. It's hot. Abraham is in. He's in the shade, sitting in the doorway of the tent. And he looks up, and suddenly these three men are right, Upon them, and so he runs out to meet them. He's surprised that he could have missed these guys coming up uh, until they were so near. Now he runs out this way because you see, hospitality was law. It was a code in the ancient Near East to the point that guests were almost considered sacred, and that included strangers. And in fact, this episode may be the one or one of the ones that Paul had in mind in Hebrews 13 when he said to Christians, 
Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So Abraham is not only surprised that somehow these men have slipped up on him, he appears to be embarrassed or chagrined about it as well, and that seems to be why he's rushing around so much so hurriedly now, lest they think that uh, he, he thinks little of them. And it's, part of, it's perhaps part of the reason that he goes to such great lengths of lavishness in the hospitality and the honor that he shows them. At a minimum, we see that Abram can tell just by looking at these three apparent men that one of them is the boss, one of them is the leader, one of them is superior to the others because you can see in verse 3 he addresses all three of them by addressing the one who is the obvious leader. My Lord, that's singular. If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves. Now he's talking to all of them by talking to the one under the tree. I will bring a morsel of bread that you may fresh your hearts, and after that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. Now the Hebrew here it adds a lot of color to what we take uh, there from that English translation. Because the Hebrew makes it plain that Abraham regards it as a privilege and a blessing to serve these men. In other words, what he's really saying, what's coming through in the Hebrew, is that if they will let Abraham serve them, then they would be blessing him. That's the way it's presented. And so Abraham greatly minimizes the hospitality he has in mind. Please let a little water be brought and and a morsel of bread when he's planning to go get an entire calf and and have it butchered and prepared for them. He's planning a feast. In any event, they say, do as you have said. And so he, Abraham begins running around to get this feast together. Verse six, he runs in and tells Sarah to prepare some fine bread. He says three measures in the Hebrew, three seahs, that, that's 20 to 30 quarts of fine meal. That's a huge amount of bread. Now, Sarah would have assigned this to her maids. She's not necessarily going to do this with her own hands, just like Abram is going to go select the calf and then give it to a lad to go prepare it. Sarah is going to take charge of the preparation of the bread, but she's going to have maidservants who are working with her. And then in verse 7, that's where Abram picks out the calf and gives it to the lad to prepare. And then in verse 8, Abram is, is preparing yogurt. That's what it means when it says butter and milk, uh, curds and whey, as it used to be called. And so this was very traditional fare for that time and region, fine yogurt. And then we see that when he gets this feast set before these men, Abram doesn't sit down and eat it with them. He stands by like a servant, to attend their every need. And then in verse 9, Abraham begins to see why these men have come, and he begins to get an inkling, begin to get some hints as to who they really are. Because the main leader says, where is your wife, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, 
Because what he's immediately going to think is, well, how do these, how does this guy know I have a wife? Well, maybe he could surmise that. Maybe he could assume that. How does he know her name? And what exact business is it of his where exactly she is? But Abraham says, here in the tent. Now, then what's really going on begins to become apparent because not only does this man know Sarah's name, he knows that she's listening from just inside the tent door. And he wants to make sure, the Lord here, wants to make sure that Sarah is not just listening, but she's hanging on every word because you know she's listening as soon as she hears her name. She's really going to be listening. And he says in verse 10, Here it becomes clear, this is the Lord. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, God has already made this promise once to Abraham. He did it in chapter 17. There in verse 15, God says to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And it's interesting because um, we, you know, we, we can't look down on Sarah for kind of laughing inside herself because that's exactly the same thing that Abraham did. That's the way he responded too when God made this promise regarding Sarah. It says that he fell on his face. Now, Sarah laughs within herself. Abraham falls down on the ground and laughs out loud. And then he says in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then God says out loud, I mean, Abraham says out loud to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, see, Ishmael, by this point, is 13 years old. You remember, Sarah gave her maid Hagar to Abram, who became pregnant. She had Ishmael. Ishmael's 13. He's been with his father. He's been father and son for 13 years. Abraham loves his son. He loves Ishmael. And in his mind, even as Sarah had been rearranging the promises of God in such a way that she can help God out, because apparently he needs some help, because this is taking too long and nothing's really happening. And so she's going to figure this out. And so she comes up with the ancient way of basically having a surrogate mother. That would be her handmaid, Hagar, which means Hagar's child, Hagar's son, would be really under her wings as the matriarch of the clan and would be like her son. And so she's got it worked out how God is going to fulfill his promises By this plan that Sarah has come up with, Abraham goes along with it. But Abraham has adjusted his thinking to that. That's the way he's thinking. For 13 years, he's thinking, this is the promised seed. Ishmael, my son, is the promised seed. But God, when so Abraham is saying to God, let Ishmael be the promised seed. Let him be the one. Sarah doesn't have to have a child. Ishmael can be the one, and God's response is emphatic. No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter, 
because Abraham just laughed at this idea that Sarah's going to have a child and that God is going to do that. And so God begins to make this play because Abraham laughs and now this time Sarah is going to laugh. And, and God is not, in a way, he's not going to get on to them for laughing. What he's going to get on to them is laughing the wrong way and bringing the wrong kind of laughter because they're laughing for the wrong reason. And God is saying, I'm going to teach you how to laugh. I'm going to teach you how to laugh from joy because of my work in your midst. I'm going to teach you what laughter is. You will name this son Isaac. Laughter. You will name him Laughter. And so he says, It is through Isaac, laughter, that I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. So you see, what God was doing with Abraham back in chapter 17 was shepherding his faith. God doesn't need Abraham's permission, and he doesn't even need his knowledge to bring all this to pass. God, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to make these promises to them. He doesn't have to fulfill them to them. God can bring about his plans in another way. And he certainly doesn't have to bring them along when they're believing, but their faith is still falling short of really laying hold of the promises of God. They're not laughing out of cynical unbelief, the, 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 the laughter of a mocker or a scorner. They're not doing that. They're believers. But at the same time, what God is saying is frankly too wonderful to be true. Um, they've gotten their hopes up before. You know that feeling. And they don't, they can't quite do that. We're going to see the same thing when we get to the New Testament with the parents of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was barren for her entire life, just like Sarah. And now she's old. They're both old. They're well past the age of childbearing. And then Zacharias is serving in the temple. Typically, a priest would serve in the temple once in an entire life. And so this is his time. And he's there serving in a temple. And an angel appears and tells him that Elizabeth, his wife, is going to have a son. And he's going to name him John. This is going to be John the Baptist. And what is Zacharias's response? Because the, the, the angel says, your prayers have been heard. The thing you have been praying for, you and your wife, for decades, your prayers have been heard. She is going to have a son. You will name him John. And then now that the prayers have been heard, they're going to be granted. What is Zacharias's response? How do I know this? That's his response. You know, but the thing is, Zacharias was a believer. God has already said, the text has already said in Luke, that Zacharias was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Not in man's eyes, in the Lord's eyes, which means he's a believer. You can't be righteous in God's eyes apart from faith. But so he's a believer, a sincere believer, and yet his faith wasn't up to that particular moment. It's the same thing with Abraham and Sarah. And so God is shepherding them. He's shepherding Abraham in chapter 17 because you see to God, it's not just important that he fulfilled his promises. It's important that Abraham believe in the moment his promises. 
because Abraham is his son, right? Sarah is his daughter. He's going to bring them along. He's going to bring their faith up. And so he does that with Abraham in chapter 17. He's doing that with Sarah now in chapter 18. So in verse 12, when Sarah hears what this guy says to Abraham about her having a son, it says she laughed within herself. She doesn't make any noise. She just laughs within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Now, again, in the Hebrew, these words have a whole lot more color than they do in English. Uh, A closer to a literal translation would be this. After I am worn out, shall my dreams come true? My husband over me being past the age of fertility also? You see, the phrase she uses when she says, I having grown old, it's an expression that was used of old clothes or old sandals that had been worn to the point that they can literally be worn no more. They are used up, they are spent, they are worn out. That's the way Sarah saw herself. Now, apparently that's not the way she looked. We've already seen evidence when she was way up in her 60s when they were in Egypt back in chapter 12 that she was stunningly beautiful. She looked much, much younger than she was to the point that Pharaoh takes her and brings her to the palace. The same thing is going to happen coming up with Abimelech. Even though she is 90 years old, she does not look anywhere near this age. She looks much younger, and she is still quite beautiful. But she knows that she is. when it comes to childbearing, she's been barren her whole life. And in addition to that, she's past menopause. So humanly speaking... Any chance of her bearing children, that ship has sailed, it's not a, and it's not in the harbor anymore. It's all the way across the horizon. You can't even see that ship anymore. But the thing is, it seems that in addition to that, she also emotionally, spiritually felt spent, used up. Um, I mean, you remember the events of chapter 16? We've already talked about that where she's trying to help God out. She comes up with this great plan with Hagar and whatever. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that, right? What could possibly go wrong with you giving your maidservant uh, uh, to your husband as a second wife? But... Those are the kind of things that we do when we start getting desperate and we feel like we got to take matters into our own hands. But that had backfired. It had blown up in her face and it had resulted in public humiliation to her. And so given the passage of time, given everything that Sarah's been through, it would be very human, very typical, very easy for her to feel used up and worn out in more than one way. And so, as God did with Abraham in chapter 17, so he now does with Sarah. He's shepherding her faith. He's continuing to talk to Abraham ostensibly. He's addressing Abraham, but he's talking directly to Sarah the whole time. Verse 13, God says, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Now, when it says too hard in the Hebrew, this also means too wonderful. Is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? So, um, God responds with just frank puzzlement and um, confusion. Why would Sarah laugh? Why would Sarah laugh at the idea that I'm going to give her a son when she's 90 years old and Abraham is 100? Why would that be a laughing matter? And then he repeats the promise. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So you see, God here sees everything just as it really is. And he he basically through this interchange talking to Abraham but really talking to her and then by the time we get to verse 15 it's kind of skipped ahead because now God is talking to her directly you know and she is saying that she did not laugh and he's saying oh but you did laugh um so we don't know how it transitioned to him talking directly with Sarah but we know that it 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 did and so through this interchange, what God is doing is cutting through all of Sarah's obfuscations. Now, maybe she was put on the spot. She's mortified that this person knows her thoughts, her very thoughts. Obviously, this is the Lord. She's put on the spot. Maybe she's thinking, I did not laugh. In other words, I did not laugh out loud. Um, we don't know, but God just cuts through it all. He says, no, but you did laugh. You know, and I know, that you laughed at this idea. And so God here, through this moment, he's revealing who he really is. He's not just the great God and the great king. He's also father. And he's Abraham's father, and he's Sarah's father. And he wants them walking with him as his children. He is not only the God who promises redemption through one who humanly cannot be born, the Lord Jesus Christ, but will be born by the power of God. And we start to see that there is a reason for all this passage of time. There is a reason for waiting for all this time for God to fulfill his promise. It's not because God just enjoys messing with people. And so he wants to just mess with Abraham and mess with Sarah. It's because Isaac is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has to be obvious to everybody that it's impossible for this son to be born of this woman. It has to be clear. Otherwise, he's not a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, Mary here was another woman who was impossible for her to have a child because she's a virgin. She does not have a man. God is doing this. This is a miraculous birth. And so this has to be a miraculous birth. And so, but that, again, that's, this is, none of this is the way that Sarah feels. She feels like she's been cast aside, like, like she's garbage, like she's junk. She's been cast aside. What does God care for her? But the truth is, she's one of the most special women in history. Out of all the women who have ever lived, it's Sarah who gets picked for this. So if God said, I need a special woman 
to play a special role. To, hope, to have this purpose and this part in redemptive history to be a picture and to give birth to the one miraculously who is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I need a special woman for this. Would you sign up? Part doesn't exactly play out how you might think. Because you don't feel special all the way along, do you? That's not the way Sarah felt. But it didn't change the fact. It didn't change the fact of what God was doing, who God was, and the fact that Sarah was in a very special position. It's all going to start coming out now. When Sarah has Isaac, she's going to say, God has made me laugh. Now she's learned to laugh. She's learned what real laughter is. Because she's laughing from pure joy. She said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh me with me. When we, when we are in the Lord's presence, when God has renewed us, when our bodies are glorified like the Lord Jesus's, all vestiges of sin and death have dropped away. The entire creation has been renewed and delivered from corruption and death. We're going to laugh. And we're laughing the laughter of Sarah at that point. So she's in a very special position. He, God is revealing who he really is. He doesn't just care about redemption of the world. He also cares about Sarah. And he cares about her faith. He cares that she walk with him. He's also revealing his promise for what it really is. He's promising a straight-up miracle and quit trying to change it, Sarah, and quit trying to change it, Abraham. Quit trying to help me out. I don't need your help. What I'm trying to bring about here, what I'm going to bring about is much more wonderful than you guys are imagining. I'm promising a miracle. That's what I'm promising. And he's also revealing Sarah as she really is. Sarah, again, she feels spent. She feels used up. She feels worn out. But the thing is, is Sarah, <clears throat> a, lot of the, a lot of the problem, it's inside her. She's all cluttered. She's all foggy inside. She can't see. She doesn't see things as they are. She doesn't see herself as she is. She doesn't see God as her is. She's just all cluttered. It's, it's, it's confused in there. And it's all coming from inside her. And so God is just cutting through all of that and, and shepherding her faith. And the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 11, tells us that this was effective, that God did shepherd her faith. By faith, Sarah received strength. She received miraculous power to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. So with Abraham in 17 and now Sarah in 18, God is nurturing. He's pulling their faith up. He's cutting through all of these other things. He's, he's eliminating any alloy of unbelief. He's eliminating any hesitancy of trust. And he's... And he's pushing out any rationalizations 
to rationalize away the miraculous that God is promising. So what takeaways then can we gather from seeing how God dealt with Abraham in chapter 17 and now Sarah in chapter 18? Well, the big takeaway is the way that God dealt with Abraham and Sarah is the same way that he deals with us. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to have some kind of miracle, but it means he's still the same father and we're sons and daughters just like they were. And God's ways with his children are always the same. That's why we have their example so prominently featured in Hebrews chapter 11 and other places, multiple places in the New Testament, because God is still the same. He is king and he is father. So let's... I want to suggest five quick takeaways here. The first one is this. Everything God does is both cosmic and individual. It is for the redemption of the world, and it is for our personal good and our personal growth. Everything God does is both cosmic and individual for the redemption of the world and for our personal good and our personal growth. We see that very clearly with Abraham and Sarah. And we see Paul displaying this in many different places in the writers of the New Testament. One place would be Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Paul talks about the cosmic. He says, The sufferings in this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. He's looking forward to the great resurrection of life. And he says, the entire creation is watching us because the creation's renewal and deliverance from sin and decay will be uh, a function of our glorification as the children of God. And then he brings it down to the personal in verse 28 and says, every single thing that comes into our life is worked for good by the sovereignty of God. Because God has predestined that each one of us will be conformed to the image of his son. And so you see that with Abraham. You see that with Sarah. They both are are sinners just like us. They fell short and they fell short in different ways. Uh, Abraham's sins manifested themselves with different flaws and weaknesses than, than Sarah's did. But God is working with each of them personally superintending personally, not just over the salvation of the world, but over them personally and their faith and their good and their blessing. The second takeaway is this. God deals with each of us, not as we should be, but as we are. God deals with each of us, not as we should be, but as we are. That's the way we see him dealing with Abraham and Sarah. Now you notice in, in the, the narrative of, uh, of their lives, they're put on full display, not just their strengths, not just their victories, but their embarrassing flaws and failures. You could easily see Abraham or Sarah, if we were in their position, we would tell God, uh, maybe you don't need to include that part, Lord, in the scriptures. Maybe, maybe not that part. God says, oh, no, we're going to, it's going to all be in there. Because if it's not, are they really our examples? Are they really our inspirations? If they're made out of stainless steel and they don't have any weaknesses? 
Uh, how could we possibly identify with them? That's not who we are. No, they, God knows and he deals with each one of us the way we really are. In chapter 18, verse 19, God is going to say, I have known Abraham. I have set my love upon him and I did it eyes open. No illusions about who he is. Psalm 19, verse 12 says, who can understand his errors? And he prays to God, cleanse me from secret faults. In other words, God knows problems and flaws and faults that we have that we're completely unaware of. He doesn't make us aware of all that. He takes a little bit as a time and he lays it before us and says, okay, I want you to walk with me on this. I want you to change this. I want you to be sanctified on that. If, if he laid it all on us at one time, he'd crush us. We couldn't even, we couldn't even handle it. So God deals with us eyes open. We may sometimes disappoint the Lord with our sin, but we never surprise him. He knows. Number three, perseverance is essential to every trait of a child of God. Perseverance is necessary to every trait of a child of God. All the different traits that we're supposed to have, all the fruit of the Spirit and the way it shows itself in our lives, it has to be attended by perseverance, sticking to it through thick and thin. This is why James says in James 1 verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, a trial in the Bible is it's like a teacher giving an exam to a student, all right? An exam necessarily means an opportunity to succeed and an opportunity to fail. It necessarily means that. But the teacher's purpose in giving the exam is not so the student will fail. It's so the student has an opportunity to succeed and to be blessed. That's the purpose of the exam. That's the way trials are uh, with us. A trial or an affliction, a hardship in the Bible, the word literally means that to put pressure. It means God has allowed circumstances to come into our lives that are squeezing us. They're squeezing us. It's putting distress upon us. It's making life tough. And a lot of times the toughest part of a trial is when it protracts. I mean, we can endure just about anything as long as short, short, quick. But look how things have protracted with Abraham and Sarah. Look how long they have waited and all the things they've gone to. That's the part that makes it so hard. Not necessarily the mountain you're climbing. It's the doggone pebble in your shoe that you can't stop to get out. That's the one. It protracts. That's the things that make us start doubting. Either the power of God, maybe God is in control after all, or the wisdom of God. God doesn't know what he's doing after all. Or the real clincher, the love of God. The love of God. And, and that one, you see, can get very personal because we can buy the fact that God is very loving to the world in general, sending the Savior, but he just doesn't love me. And can we blame him? Right? Isn't that the way we think? And so that's when the doubts start to come in. James says these trials are to produce perseverance. 
that you walk with God and perseverance is essential to us standing up to our full height as sons and daughters, to us becoming all that it means to be a child of God. That's what God is doing with us. Even Jesus, who had no sins, who had no flaws, had to endure hardship to stand up to his full height of what it means to be the Son of God. So number four, God's training is difficult. God's training is difficult. Hebrews 12, 11. Now, no chastening, that is training. The words padea. If you're involved in uh, uh, Christian education, you know that word padea. Everything that's involved in training, teaching, correcting, discipline, uh, all of that kind of stuff. No padea, no training seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. If it's fun right now in the moment, great, but it's not training. It's not training if it's fun. It's going to put pressure on you. It's going to put stress on you. It's going to put hardship on you if it's training. And the thing about training is afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. It's hard. So even when we have the wisdom to remember where we are in the moment, okay, God's sovereign here. This is a trial. This is where I am. I feel like he's cast me to the side, but that's not true. I'm center stage right now. All the saints who have come before, the great cloud of witnesses is looking and they're rooting and they're saying, know where you are. This is the same thing we do in a book or a movie when we see the main hero or the heroine come under hardship and trial and stress and there's that possibility of them going down the wrong path and doing the wrong thing. And what we're all thinking is, don't do it. Know where you are. You're the star. You're the, you're, the spotlight's on you right now. Know where you are. Think. That's what we're saying to them. That's the same thing is true of us. But even when we have the wisdom to remember where we are, to remember God's good purposes, and we have the faith to trust God in the moment, trials and hardships are still trials and hardships. They're not fun. They're hard. They're tough. And that's the way it is. And that brings us to the fifth one. This is part of what makes this necessary. We must minister to one another. We see God shepherding. Abraham and Sarah's faith here, and he does shepherd every single one of us, but he also shepherds us through one another. We see that in Colossians 3, verse 16, and Ephesians 5, verse 18. It talks about us as Christians um, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, the reason why it brings up psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is because the Psalter is God's counseling manual. It's also a book of music, but it's his counseling manual because all the theology of Scripture is in the Psalms put in a blender and pureed, and it's poured out in a glass in terms of human experience. It's not theory anymore. It's human experience. And that's what you need when you're counseling somebody, right? You need it put in terms of human experience, and a lot of usually in terms of somebody else has already lived. David, for example, David went through what you're going through. 
But as we go through different trials and hardships, it can be difficult for us to maintain perspective. It's like flying in the clouds. You can't see. You need somebody who's not in the clouds to speak to you, to let you know, to remind you that's what we're supposed to do for one another. Teach and admonish. Pick one another up. Talk to one another. Encourage one another. Shepherd one another's faith. We're supposed to do that for one another. And so it's connected in Colossians with letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. It's connected in Ephesians 5.18 with being filled with the Spirit. It's connected to doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's connected to being grateful and thankful in all things to God the Father. It's connected to the Christian walk. It's a big part of the Christian walk. That's what you're supposed to do for one another as brothers and sisters. So I give all this to you. I hope this, is, I hope this ministers to you the way that God was ministering to Abraham and Sarah and the way he wants us to minister to one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.